Father, we pray right now that you would free us from every distraction and make our hearts attentive, so attentive to your word toward us right now. We ask that you would open up our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your law today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we went over Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 2, with a little bit of verse 1. Uh, today we're going to go over uh, verses 3 to 7 in this beautiful passage, this picture of the gospel. And uh, I'm going to read out the, the passage today before we begin. So Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. This is God's word. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's word. We saw last week that all of these wonderful marks of good conduct, these kind of marks of being a heavenly citizen, things like showing perfect courtesy toward all people, uh, not quarreling, being gentle, not speaking evil of others, it all has to be rooted in the sovereign mercy of God. It has to be connected to the gospel. The moment you disconnect all of the uh, requirements upon us, the evidence of our citizenship, as we said, the moment you disconnect all of these things like showing perfect courtesy and all of the works that we do, the moment you disconnect them from the gospel, they simply become either self-righteous moralism or guilt-driven works. They just become things that um, we either think make us a better person or we don't think we're a good person, we're guilty about it. And so we try and do these things to sort of cover our guilt. And that's what happens if you disconnect this from the gospel. So we can't simply hear the call to put into practice these marks, nor can we ignore them and go the terrible route of just trying to portray God's grace as this license to do whatever we want. That's not the case. We certainly can't disconnect it from the gospel or we will never have the right balance for how we live faithfully to please the Lord and doing so out of the fullness of joy that we find in the gospel. So we need to have our lives rooted in the reality of this uh, this message of God's sovereign mercy of being freely forgiven of our sins through the work of Christ. And this passage in verses 3 to 7 gives this wonderful picture of the description uh, of our salvation. So this is our foundation. If we don't have this, if we don't understand the foundation for this, then everything else crumbles. And there are four main themes here that I want to draw out today. The first theme is total depravity. Secondly, God's sovereign mercy. Thirdly, regeneration and renewal. 
And lastly, justification and then our future rewards. So total depravity, God's sovereign mercy, regeneration and renewal, and then justification and future reward. Uh, you may be familiar with these themes as the uh, auto salutus or the order of salvation, which looks at kind of the, the uh, not the temporal sequence, but just the logical order of how we go from being dead to life in Christ and what happens in there as far as having faith, being born again, justification. There is this theological concept of the order of salvation. And Paul actually pretty neatly lays this out for us in this passage. So after reminding Titus to call the Cretans to godly living and good conduct, in verse 3, we see our first theme here of total depravity. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's a terrible description. But it's the description of humanity. And Paul's saying, we were. This is what we were like. It's meant to paint a bleak picture of the reality of humankind in our depravity. It's not saying that in this state we could never do anything to benefit others or even seem virtuous. But it is saying that at our core, humanity is so stained by sin This thing called the fall happened and sin then passed down to every single person. We are so corrupted by sin that our nature is sinful. Our default is to be foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions. That's our default. We are enslaved to this selfish lifestyle which leaves us unable to please God. It's not really the kind of motivational speech that we have usually in our society, but that's reality. We are the, we were these people. Remember the expectation for Paul is that people who follow Jesus have moved on from this, but they should never forget, never have any superiority to uh, neglect that they were, we were these people. There is a great irony, I think, in our modern day, our modern culture in people pursuing things like Autonomy and freedom, these are ideas that people um, throw around a lot, that, that most people in a secular society, they want to chase this idea of freedom. So therefore, that's this idea of expressive individualism. We want to identify with how we feel because that's freedom and we want to express our freedom and no one can oppress us and take that away. And there is great irony in the fact that we talk about this, people in society talk about this, but the reality is they're just enslaved to selfish desires. They're enslaved to their selves, to their every desire. The reality is that in our fallen state, we can only ever do what we want to do. We can only ever do what we want to do. We can't do what we don't want to do. We are slaves to what we want to do. And what we want to do is corrupted because of sin. Our hearts are curved in on themselves, so we can only ever do what we want to do, which is simply to please ourselves. It's like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about this in uh, the fallen state of humanity. And he says, although they knew God, this is just humanity, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
their hearts were darkened. This is our hearts. We are darkened. We can't even see. I mean, so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of your face, much less how to please God. This is the fallen state of humanity. So to be truly free is to then have those chains of self-pleasure broken, to have those shackles of self-pleasure finally broken. And now you can actually do what you didn't want to do, which is live to the glory of God. That is freedom set free from selfish desires. So there are two things that we should see, first of all, in this uh, first theme here of total depravity in verse 3. The first thing we should see is the depraved state of humankind, this picture of hopelessness. I mean, as you read through the descriptions, it paints this hopeless picture. Uh, And the second thing that we should see is that we were these people, and so we have no right to assert any form of superiority over anyone. We have no right to establish any form of superiority. To do that would be like if you had a bunch of pigs frolicking in mud, eating filth, and then one day a farmer comes and takes one of the pigs and cleans him off, puts a nice tux on him, makes him walk, and then the pig turns around to the other pigs and immediately says, you disgusting pigs. You are so low. That's the reality of if we have any place of superiority over these people. If it was not for the grace of God, we would be in that exact state. We possess nothing within ourselves to bring us out of that. So there's no place for prideful superiority. But the reality is that for those who have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who have not been reborn, then there is this depraved state. There is this depraved condition which keeps them captive. And in this place, we are simply selfish at our core and we are unable to please God. And this presents a huge problem for us. Presents a huge problem for humanity because God requires that we live in obedience to his laws And we are unable to do so. And he is a just God and he must punish us where we walk in disobedience to his laws. And we are in this state where our depravity has left us unable to do that, unable to please God. And therefore, we are liable for punishment. So our only hope is for this God to take pity on us. That's our only hope for him to have absolute mercy on us. And this is... Praise the Lord, what happens? We look at verses 4 and then the start of verse 5. We see the next theme of God's sovereign mercy. So we have total depravity and then God's sovereign mercy. Verse 4, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appears. When the invisible God becomes visible in Jesus Christ, since he is the image of the invisible God, this is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appearing. When God presents himself to all of humanity in Christ, it's the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appearing. The moment of the incarnation of Christ coming, of Jesus entering into the womb of Mary, that is God communicating to the world, I am making a way for salvation. I am making a way for you to be free from sin 
to be restored to relationship with me. That's the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appearing when Christ comes in the flesh. So in our state of depravity, God's goodness appears and all of a sudden there is light shining through the darkness. It was so dark that we couldn't see our hand in front of our face, but by the grace of God, there is light shining through. So God's goodness appears in Jesus as Jesus brings away for salvation. And this is just a bit of a side point, more so uh, for people we might come across who do not profess to follow Jesus and especially those in a secular uh, with a secular worldview. Salvation is a very Christian word. I don't think I had ever come across the word salvation as a teenager or into my early 20s. It wasn't until I became a Christian. It's not really a word that gets thrown around a lot in secular society. But the reality is that the theme of salvation, the theme of deliverance, is all over our society. Every religion has a view of salvation. Even atheistic religions like forms of Buddhism have a form of salvation in that you can finally get to this place of nirvana where you're free from all suffering and that is salvation. In secular society, salvation is everywhere. This is why so much emphasis goes into the right pronouns, inclusivity and then cancelling people who don't subscribe to that because we are trying to create salvation. We are trying to create a utopian society. Everyone longs for salvation. Everyone knows that there is something wrong with this world and they long for salvation. But the reality is there is only one path to salvation. There's only one name under heaven by which everyone must be saved. That is Jesus. We have the message So how does God save us? What's the ins and outs, so to speak, of this salvation? Look at verse 5. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We went over this a bit last week, so very briefly. Mercy, of course, means that God withholds what we deserve in order to gift us something that we don't. He withholds the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. And in doing that, he extends his grace toward us in Christ. And we receive the gift of salvation, which means it is completely undeserved. God withholds the punishment. And it's not like he just withholds the punishment and remains a little bit angry. No, he gives the punishment upon Jesus. He accepts. Uh, releases his wrath upon the Son in our place and therefore we know there is nothing but the love of God toward us in Christ. His wrath has been poured out, the punishment placed upon him. The great exchange happens where we receive Christ's righteousness. He receives our sin. We are cleansed all by the mercy of God. So what happens when God extends mercy toward us in Christ. This is the next theme here, regeneration and renewal. Some complex theological themes here, but very important for us to understand. A key event that coincides with God's mercy being poured out is the new birth and renewal by the Spirit. So look at the second half of verse 5 and then verse 6. So God saved us. By the washing of regeneration 
and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the order of salvation is that we are dead in our sins. A dead person can't do anything. We are dead in our sins, slaves to selfish desires. And then God, in his mercy, calls us by causing his salvation to appear. And in calling us, we are brought to life. Life comes. This is the new birth. Regeneration is literally to become again. That's why we get to be born again. This is how God saves us. God saves us by the washing of regeneration, by the washing of new birth. Washing is almost certainly connected with baptism here. And in baptism, we are immersed in the water as a sign of us identifying with Christ's death. So as Christ died and was buried, so we go under the water to show that we are dead to sin. We died through Christ. And then as Christ is raised to new life, raised to life again. So we, coming out of the water, are raised to newness of life. And the baptism symbolizes in the water the cleansing. That's the new birth. This is why we are called to be baptized when we call upon the name of Jesus, because the baptism is an outward sign of the inward reality of what has happened. And in the outward sign, it actually reaffirms for us that, yes, we are dead to sin. We are dead to that life. We have died the death through Christ. And as Christ was raised and we come out of the water, we are living our new life in Christ. Dead to that old life, the new has come. Something new has happened. And Paul very clearly says here, that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. I believe renewal here, uh, the renewal of the Holy Spirit is connected with the washing of regeneration. So we know that there is this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, right? That he is our helper, the helper who sustains us, he intercedes for us. And that is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. But here, Paul, I believe, is talking about this one event of our salvation, the new birth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit together. He says in verse five, God saved us, past tense, saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is referring to this event where God, past tense, saved us, though he is saving us and there is a sanctification process going on and the Holy Spirit helps us. God saved us, how? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So to, to see this, we need to understand the Spirit's work in making us a new creation. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new has come. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. And to understand this, we have to go all the way back to the creation account in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, what do we read? At the very beginning, verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God is active in creation. God is a Trinitarian God. So the Spirit of God is active in creation. He is there hovering over creation, present in creation. 
And now if we move forward to Jesus's life, what happens at the Annunciation, which is where the angels appear to Mary and say, hey, good news, you're going to give birth to God, basically. Incredible news. What do we read there when Mary says, how is this going to happen? Natural response. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Creates this same picture of the Spirit hovering over. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's showing that Jesus is bringing the new creation. The first creation is fallen and corrupt and Jesus comes to bring the new creation. He is the second Adam who has come to recreate humanity from its fallen state. So because of our depraved state, we are infected by sin. Back to verse 3, we are infected by sin. So man has to be recreated to then be set free from that sin. It's like the example that Athanasius gives 1,600 years ago of if someone sat for a portrait, if someone wanted a self-portrait or a sculpture back then, they would sit for it, the artist would paint or sculpt the picture, and then once it was finished, it would look clearly as good as new, but over time, it would, it would get distorted and corroded and corrupted. And this is before the day of the digital age, so they're not going to have copies of it. So what happens when that image is corrupted? You have to get the original person to come and re-sit for it, to recreate it all over again. It's so corrupted that it's beyond recreation. You can't recreate it. It's been corroded. So the original person has to come and re-sit for it. Now, Athanasius says that's what Jesus has done. We were made in the image of God. We sat, we were made in the image of God, but sin corrupted us. Beyond recognition, though we bear the image, it's corrupted. So the perfect human has to come and re-sit. And there's only one perfect human, Jesus. So he comes and he re-sits for the portrait so that God can recreate man in the image of God. Jesus re-sits for it. And then we, as we trust in Christ, new creation. That's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Man has been restored and redeemed. Jesus has come. He re-sat to, to recreate humanity in him. And now everyone who turns to Christ receives the restoration that comes through that. So the renewal of the Holy Spirit here is referring to this renewing work of the Spirit that Jesus initiates through his life, death and resurrection. And this renewing work coincides with the new birth where we are brought into Christ and therefore we are new. Something new has happened. So just as the Spirit hovers over creation in the, the creation account, the Spirit likewise comes upon us and is actually poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, to make us new. Look at how Paul describes this. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly. Not just a sprinkling, but poured out on us richly. God does not give His Spirit sparingly. He gives His Spirit generously to help us, to sustain us, to make us new. 
So we are saved by the complete undeserved mercy of God where he rebirths us and renews us by the cleansing blood of Christ and by the work of the Spirit, which sounds awfully familiar to Jesus' words in John 3, where he's saying you must be born of water and the Spirit. And that's the new birth. And just to be super clear here on our part, because hopefully if you're seeing this work, you are seeing a sovereign God over creation, that we are just this pitiable people in the mud and mire and God in his mercy comes down and saves us. He takes us out of the mud and mire and sets our feet upon the rock. You see a big sovereign God over salvation. But just as God predestines people for salvation, he predestines the means. So we as the church have this task to proclaim this message And as we proclaim the message of Christ, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. As we proclaim the message of Christ, the Holy Spirit uses our words as we go out and brings life. Just as Jesus, when he approached Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, and he comes and he speaks and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus is brought to life and he comes forth. It's a helpful picture for us as we speak the words of Christ, not our own words, but as we speak the words of Christ, we trust that the Spirit brings life to people as we go out and that we do not know where the Spirit has come from or where he is going, but we speak the word and all of a sudden miraculous things happen Dead people are brought to life. People who were slaves to their every desire are all of a sudden made new and they seek to worship the risen Christ and become enslaved to him. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing that we have the privilege of joining in on. So regeneration, the new birth, precedes faith. The Spirit brings us to life so that we can hear and respond to God's merciful gift of salvation and by faith we trust in Christ. And this then leads us to the final part in this gift of salvation. We are justified. Verse 7, the result of regeneration and renewal is that we are justified by His grace. Justification is the act of God declaring us righteous, declaring, saying, You are in the right. Not only is your sin forgiven, but his justification is that we have done everything right because it is by the righteousness of Christ that we then receive, we possess, and we then stand before God and we are justified. Not guilty, but also have done everything right. We receive the life of Christ And the fact that we are declared righteous points us forward to the wonderful reality of what this brings. So look at just the last few words here in verse 7. Justified by His grace, uh, so so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. An heir is someone who has an inheritance, right? An heir is someone who has an inheritance. So what is our inheritance? 
I think in a simple way, hopefully not oversimplified, but in a simple way, our inheritance that we long for is to bask in the uninhibited glory of God for all eternity. That is our inheritance, to have complete uninhibited worship of God, to bask in His glory for all eternity. And that is what we were made for. We were not made to live 70 or 80 years in this life, have a nice family, work a bit, go on a few holidays and then return to dust. And then, of course, even for people who would profess to follow Jesus, we were not made to simply accommodate Jesus into our lives, to join a little community and play some Christian games for a few decades. Meanwhile, we're living this life that looks no different to anyone else. We were made to worship God through Christ. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We were made to know Him in all of the fullness, to know an infinite God, to swim in the depths of that ocean of knowledge and bask in it for all eternity. We were made to be absolutely captivated by the glory of God rather than being taken captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit, which depends upon human traditions, or rather than being taken captive by being slaves of selfish desires. We were made to be enslaved and captivated by this God in whom is the fullness of joy. So our inheritance is the full realization of the taste that we get now. That's our inheritance. We taste, we have an appetite for it, and we long for the full realization of that. And the pathway to our inheritance is the hope of eternal life. Remember Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, he says in verse 3, this is eternal life. This is what eternal life is that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what true life is all about, knowing God. That's what it's all about. So the hope we have in Christ, where life is found, the fullness of life is in Christ. The hope that we have in that life is what keeps us moving toward our inheritance. And the Apostle John gives a wonderful picture of this in his first letter where he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. He's saying, beloved, we are children of God. What a wonderful identity. We are children of God, which means we are heirs. So when we cry, Abba, Father, when we cry in all of our weakness, in all of our suffering, when we cry, Father, Father, that is the spirit bearing witness within us that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. That cry of Father, Father, is the Spirit bearing witness that we are children of God. And as we live as children in this fallen world, with all of the trials and difficulties that we go through, our hope, our ultimate hope, is that one day, we will see our Savior face to face. One day, and that better be your hope. One day, 
we will see him face to face. And like Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth and I will see him for myself. I, in my flesh, I will see him and not another. And Job says, my heart faints within me. How I long for that day, the day where my Redeemer will stand on this earth and I will see him. I will behold him. That's the hope of eternal life. And that's what purifies us and keeps us on this pathway toward our inheritance. When we see him, we will become as he is, completely sinless to be without sin anymore. Imagine to be without any sinful thoughts, without any guilt, without any shame. To have uninhibited worship of him, to just simply behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's glory. That's what we long for. And the wonderful thing about understanding this message of salvation, understanding that it is a sovereign God over salvation. We believe that salvation is entirely God's work, not 1% us then realizing what we should do and making a decision, entirely God's work. And he is therefore able to complete that salvation. He initiates it. He is able to complete it. He's able to bring us to glory. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's our trajectory. It's sealed by the blood of Christ. Everything that we do as followers of Jesus, all of the responsibilities that we have to be good citizens, to bear his name well, to have Perfect courtesy toward all people must be rooted in the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ that Paul spells out here. I'm going to pray and then we will uh, prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper in response. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your salvation and this beautiful message of a sovereign God by your sheer mercy, though you did not have to, yet in your loving kindness, you extended mercy to a people who do not deserve it. That's why it is mercy. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in that gift. And we pray that you would seal that upon our hearts more and more so that we would reject superficial versions of Christianity and we would spend our lives immersing ourselves in the knowledge of God, which is absolutely practical and absolutely able to cause our love to abound toward others within the body and even outside. So strengthen us, we pray, to take hold of this and find great joy in it and Help us to stay longing for the day where our Redeemer will stand on this earth. We will see, we will see him face to face. We will behold him. Everything will be made right. May we bask in that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.